Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Kim Merriman, your host, coming from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today, my guest is Colby Brokevist, an adventure guide. Well, it's nice to finally meet you, Colby. We've been exchanging emails and we have a good friend in common, Sam Ham. Yeah, Sam, wonderful, wonderful mentor of mine. And uh, yeah, Sam and I, yeah, we go back quite a ways now, as I'm sure you do. Yeah. And thanks for having me on here today. It's been, I really appreciate you reaching out. Well, Sam wrote the foreword for our book, Personal Interpretation, and I know he wrote one for you and uh, is very involved in your publishing firm and communication series. So we we will talk about your book, but I want to start somewhere else. You know, when I was 11 years old, you could have asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, biologist. And I went ahead and did two degrees in botany or zoology and botany. Did you know when you were young, you might want to do this or kind of? No, no, I didn't even know this was possible. When I when I was young, my mother tells the story of when I was in kindergarten and they said, oh, what do you want to do? You know, the kids want to be astronauts and firemen. And I said, I wanted to be a paleontologist. And then so then the, the story that my mother tells all the time is that then the kindergarten teacher, when she gave me back to my mother at the end of the day, had had to ask what that was and what it meant. Um, so yeah, he likes dinosaurs, of course, right? But yeah, I've always been interested in the natural world uh, and in the outdoors. Uh, when I went to college, I wanted to work um, outdoors, uh, specifically in like wetlands and forests. And so my degrees in geologic and environmental sciences with a emphasis in wetland hydrology. Uh, but then I realized that, you know, once I got out there in the workforce, I realized that most of those jobs are based around construction and, you know, government contracts and things. And so that was a little less engaging for me. I ended up going and hiking the Appalachian Trail. And out there, I learned from some other people I was hiking with um, that you could be a guide. Um, and because uh, my friend and I, we were kind of the nature guys. We He had a biology degree. I had environmental science degree. We knew a lot about land use and that kind of stuff. So people would be like, hey, like we're going from a national park into a national forest. Like, what is the difference? What does that mean? And we knew uh, we were helping people make salads on the trail. And at some point there, you know, there's this guy and he was like, you know, you should do this for a living. It's really fun to be out with you guys. And I, I didn't really know that that was a real thing at the time. And I learned from him that guiding is is a is a real career and you know for me that that meant at the time i thought it was like oh it's like river raft guiding or mountaineering you know and like all that kind of thing and and he helped me understand that guiding is a lot of uh different things whether you're working in a museum or you know you're a docent at the zoo or you're taking people out in the national parks where there's so many different types of guiding and he helped me understand that and then a number of years later i i shifted towards towards doing this because being outdoors with people is what really brings me joy. That's great. I did a master's in phycology, which is algae. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I was very enamored of swamps and, and lakes and water. And uh, then I found out that as a phycologist, you spend all your time in a laboratory looking through a microscope. And uh, so you you trade the 10 hours of field work for 50 hours in the lab and i i thought i can't do that so <laughs> no that's right yeah yeah you're an adventure guide is that a fair statement uh adventure travel realm yeah adventure travel. that's right okay. yeah 
different from some types of guiding, right? In the sense that we're out there for longer periods of time with people. And so your relationships change with them uh, over time. There's some different group management techniques that we might apply um, and risk management and sort of operational stuff, you know, scales up for sure. But at the heart of it, you know, we're just guides like anyone else, like trying to inform people and, and increase, enhance their understandings of a place and draw emotional connections to it. And at, at the heart of it, that's what we're doing. Your first, your early experiences in this kind of guiding, where were they? Where were you? Well, I kind of had to beat my way up. Uh, so, yeah, I was in Colorado. I was working for uh, REI, the gear, you know, retailer. Uh, and they have, um, you know, they were doing like clinics, uh, educational clinics and things like come learn how to, you know, rock climb or everything you need to know for snowshoeing or camping, whatever it is. And so I, I ended up leading a lot or, you know, these these clinics it's not really leading anything but you know kind of instructing these things um and then that led to being able to do some things with um with rei out in the field when they would start doing gear demos and these kind of things i would go for the weekend so then i would take people out for the whole day and we would actually go snowshoeing or we'd go skiing or we you know some of the practical applications of the stuff in the field and that in addition to some of the you know medical type of certifications and other things that guides need that added up to having just enough experience to get hired on as a backpacking guide out in California. And that was my first real break as a guide. Well, REI store in Denver was one of the places I used to go routinely. And I remember they had a climbing wall and yeah, it was kind of an exotic store by the river there. It's full on. I think they call it their flagship store, right? You can go mountain yeah. biking, they a little pump yeah. track. and Yeah, it's pretty neat. You worked in Yosemite a fair bit, I take it from reading your bio. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I guess in, in context of this personal story of mine, that, that's where I ended up as a backpacking and, and rock climbing guide is there. Um, yeah, and, you know, what I discovered being there I was, I was there for about 11 years. Uh, I started as a guide and then I worked as the general manager. Um, but what I, what I discovered when I got out there, the, the fun part was all the interpretive stuff that comes along with it. Right. And, and helping people understand these places and understanding the natural world, our relationship, you know, the human relationship or people's personal relationship with nature and what that might mean for them and, um, you know, for our society. And those conversations was, were really fun for me. Um, and and I I feel really fortunate for that because, because I was able to fill in a lot of the time with these types of conversations. And it wasn't just about kind of hedonistic playtime. I started getting longer contracts. And so I was able to do, you know, three month trips on the John Muir Trail or, you know, eight days crossing Yosemite. These, these trips that, where you really got to know people on a deeper level, and but also they get to really know these natural areas on a deeper level. Uh, and so then it was in, you know, a matter of just taking all the knowledge that I had up in my mind, uh, learning a little bit more about, you know, California natural history and, you know, systems and all this, and then building stories to, you know, bring bring people into that 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 under deeper understanding of the places that they were becoming emotionally attached to through their adventures. 
so that was really fun. And then, and, and so those, those experiences were really formative for me as a backpacking guide, but they also made a foundation, you know, where all the different guiding skills, like you really, you know, things really intensify when you're out there with guests for a long period of time, right? A lot of group management things come out that don't exist when you're with someone for say a few hours or even a full day, you know, on a, on a tour somewhere. And so it's, you know, it, it forced you real quickly to, to level up and it really weeds out people that have, you know, um, the ability to, to, to understand group management and real leadership and real operational management versus people that are just kind of going out for the day, taking people, you know, up a rock climb and, you know, it's a physical challenge and, you know, maybe that's, then that's wonderful, but it's not much more than that. So then that acts it as a foundation that to then be able to jump into other things around the world where I'm doing more expeditionary stuff these days. And in particular, I'm focused on conservation travel. And so now the interpretive aspects of my job are what keeps me going all of the time, because I get to tie people into conservation efforts and community empowerment efforts uh, at the places that we work in uh, all over the world. And that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. Makes sense to me. I'm also aware that you're a photographer and that you teach some photography. Where do you do that? Yeah. Um, well, these days I primarily do that uh, through Natural Habitat Adventures, uh, the, the company that I, I primarily work for, uh, doing all of this conservation uh, travel work. Yeah, good fun. Um, I, I, I took some photography classes, you know, back in school uh, and have always kept up on it. And it's a it's a, you know, a fun passion hobby for me on the side. Uh, but yeah, I've gotten good enough to do an instruction with people out there. And you know, so now we do specifically, uh, yeah, wildlife photography trips. Well, have you done that also with Lindblad? I have actually done that with Lindblad as well. Yep, yep. Uh, Lindblad National Geographic uh, aboard their ships. Um, that's right. I was, I'm actually a certified um, photography instructor with Lindblad National Geographic and has worked have worked in that capacity too. And I actually read somewhere that you said the word dark room. You know what a dark room is? <laughs> I, I I do. I'm just old enough. Yeah, I've seen the change. I I started uh, so yeah, even through college, you know, we had black and white cameras, you know. That's that's what we were using. Using using the old Ilford film and out there with the mechanical cameras. And then yeah. Saw, saw the whole shift with everybody else, right? And now I'm I'm fully mirrorless now. We just went mirrorless uh, with an icon. And when I learned photography, I learned in seventh grade, would have been 1958. And we were carrying a Graflex 500 camera with a four by five, those yeah. cartridges you'd slip in the back, take a photo, pull it out, flip it over and put it in. You had to pull a slide Right, which is a pretty good feat for a young kid, right? To well, we would go to basketball games and run with this camera the size of a basketball and a nine-pound battery hanging from our shoder to to run the strobe. It was it was entertaining way to learn photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it is entertaining though, right? Like it's it's good fun. It's really enjoyable, I think. And and I do miss the darkroom days. Um, you know, there's a you know, Angel Adams, of course, had famous, you know, books, you know, like he did the negative and the print, right? And so the print is really fun. And in the dark room is a great place to be because the, there would often be other people around and you're sharing and, you know, it's kind of nonsense. And 
but it's also nice to not have all those chemicals anymore right like that's a big one for me um and it, it does it feels different today like you have so much creative control now um you know using programs like lightroom and whatever it might be in the sort of the digital dark room if you will but I, I do still miss something about this the, the that tactile experience and the magic of slowly seeing your image appear you know after it comes out of the the fixing baths and stuff yeah that was, it was good fun looking at again at some of your bio background about the amount that you've done in the polar environs because I've missed those entirely I've I've been to Alaska a couple of times but not really when it was cold and uh, yeah. What are you doing in the way of polar guiding? Yeah, so that's primarily what I do these days. Uh, so I work at a, a remote camp in Southeast Greenland. It's land-based, but then we're, we're in these big fjord systems. And uh, and so we have kayaks and you know Zodiac watercraft and these sort of things to get us out and do excursions. And so we might visit glaciers, uh, go zip around the icebergs, um, but we also visit local communities. And so in, in Greenland, there's a, a, a real strong cultural component. And we get to hear from these people that are living, um, you know, in Southeast Greenland, um, so the kind of where the North Atlantic and the Arctic meet, um, and they're they're on the edge of the Arctic, which is the edge of climate change right now. And to speak with people, it, it's fascinating because they've seen so much change in their lives. Um, you know, anybody sort of for the on this coast, on the East Coast, you know, like people, if you were sixty five or older, you probably were born out on the land and lived, you know, nomadically over your life, you know, and like, you'll remember that there were towns there. Some people may live in the town, you know, during the summer or the winter, and then the other season, they'd go out on the land. Now they have cell phones and Facebook, right? And and so this, this change in daily life, cultural and social changes are incredible. And then that's, that's married to all of this environmental change um you know because of climate change that they've seen as well so new areas open to you know fishing or hunting or exploration that were always just covered with glaciers in the past and now you can just go up in there and hike um and like local fisheries are changing the one thing that's happening right now is they're 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 trying to uh learn how to cod fish and build up a cod fishing industry um cod never existed there until just a a, a number of years ago but they're all moving in because the ocean waters are warmer so that the, those those trips are really interesting because it's just fun exploration, uh, but you also get you know just these these real stories from real people and our, what we experience in our daily lives down here, like you know in in the regular latitudes. I'm in the U.S. You're in the U.S. You know, like it's nothing like what you know our daily skill set doesn't apply to what's going on up there. So it's just fascinating. And then down in Antarctica, I work on um, small yachts and sailboats. Uh, so very, very small groups down there. Occasionally, I, I'll work on some of the expedition ships, um, you know, like uh, what Limblad National Geographic has. I work on them sometimes. Uh, but primarily, um, I'm working for, again, Natural Habitat Adventures, and we're doing these trips on on small yachts. So I might have seven guests with me, uh, and we go and we we do a lot of exploration. Uh, but we're tied in uh, to working with some researchers, uh, well, they researchers who work on um, whale and um, and krill kind of overlap and feeding and things like this. And they're looking to create marine protected areas uh, to um, enhance the feeding opportunities for all the wildlife that migrates to Antarctica every year 
to feed on the krill, but there's competition from krill fisheries right now. And so there's a big push to create some protected areas uh, that have more guidance as to like when and how much krill can be harvested. So it's not interfering with the wildlife because it's so important. Um, and that's the big story down there. Um, and then, you know, we can think again about some of the glaciers and sea ice things that are going on as we're exploring. So then we have all the toys, right? We have the boats and uh, again, kayaks, you can land in the big penguin colonies, you know, we'll go sliding down the hill sometimes. We have zodiacs to rip around. So a lot of exploration, a lot of just really fun stuff. Uh, but there's some really important things happen in both of the polar regions um, that, you know, that that really do affect us in, in you know, lower latitudes. And so it's it's fun to learn about those and help people understand the connections between all of these different ecosystems and how it affects our daily lives at home. Who seems to be the market for those kinds of trips, those people that love nature and think about the future? Yeah. So all ages? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the, the the trips that we're running are on the end of luxury travel. Um, and we tend to draw in people that have a lot of disposable income and time, right? Yeah. So whatever that that might mean, um, you know, every year I have people that are in their 30s and their 40s. I would say more heavily we get people that are in their 50s and 60s and then occasionally some people that are older as well. Yeah. So you need the time, you need the money, but you need some level of fitness. So they're not strenuous trips, but, you know, you got to be able to get in and out of Zodiac boats when there's waves and walk around in the snow and your boots and that kind of stuff, you know, like just basic level of, of fitness to get out there and enjoy yourself interesting thing about adventure travel to me is that it it does for many people take them out of their comfort zone and uh, i i don't fancy that we do the, anything like what you're doing i used to have a rafting company on uh class five water in colorado we did royal gorge and yeah. i was aware when i went out with my guides that they knew what they were doing and i didn't and uh so I never guided. I never led a boat trip at all. They, I hired really experienced whitewater rafters, but uh, it it's very challenging. Do you do any rafting in Greenland or? Uh, no, not on those trips. Not on those trips. I've done a little bit of that personally, you know. But that that's the that's the thing about travel, right? Like you know, adventure travel is defined by there's a level of risk and challenge that's involved right you might not have that in some other types of like vacation trips whatever it be but like adventure tourism itself you're going to have risk and challenge but you know that can mean a lot of different things for different people right yeah everyone has their own threshold and for some people it might be really like they, they might feel very challenged by going to tanzania and then sitting in a safari vehicle and driving around like all the travel that goes along with that there's new culture there's new foods it's all new it's not like home you have to rely on someone else to make sure you're comfortable like that that could be a big emotional challenge for people and then yeah then you can start adding more challenge and more risk like what you're talking about you know you're going down class five whitewater like that's that's real risk to your life you know Absolutely. and and there's this whole spectrum and people can choose their own adventure right but at the heart of that is is the guides help, helping people through these experiences to maximize their own personal outcomes out of it. And that's it's a pretty cool place to be. 
Yeah, good guides are all the difference in the world. We put our uh, selves in the hands of experienced guides in Tanzania and Rwanda that we know know the resource, the safety issues, everything. The culture's extremely well. We we do the general uh, kind of handling of talking to the hospitality people and that sort of thing. But uh, we're relying on very experienced local guides to do everything else because when you're yeah. changing tire in the middle of a pride of lions, you need to know what you're doing. You need to know what the lions are doing too. <laughs> <laughs> and I've yeah. watched that happen. And uh, we got stuck in a mud hole in the midst of a pride of lions last, last trip. So always interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's exciting. And yeah. you also go up amongst the polar bears, I understand, in Churchill. Yeah, so that's the other third, the third gig. And I, actually, I leave tomorrow to go up there, uh, October and November. Uh, there's the only migration uh, of, you know, mass migration of bears in the world, and it's for the polar bears. They're waiting for the ice to form up. Uh, they've been waiting all summer long because um, the the ice in Hudson Bay free, uh, sorry, it melts every summer. Of course, uh, and so the bears uh, know that there's one particular place up near Churchill, Manitoba, and that's where the ice freezes first every year. And so all the bears along the coast move up there, and they wait for the ice to freeze up. Uh, and then we, so we go to see them. There are bears all over, and that's what we do. And in same thing, you know, that's, um, you know, that's paired with, you know, meeting the local people and, you know, learning about culture and life up there. Um, in the subarctic so yeah real cool local people up there yeah oh, who are they are they Inupiat, athabascan what oh um primarily uh cree dene and metis people um there are some inuit people that are around as well yep uh primarily yeah and we get to meet a lot of those people like hear hear about them you know like uh some, some of them are actually pretty famous you know yeah yeah it's 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 pretty fun I'm amused these days when I uh, were out with Maasai folks and I see a little beaded packet on their belt and I say, what's in the beaded packet? And he says, my cell phone. Yeah. I, I call my wife and tell, or wives and tell them I'll be home later. So it's, it's interesting how technology is everywhere. I Sure. Yeah, of course. It's a it's a wonderful tool, right? All that technology. Like, why would you why would you not adopt that? Yeah, we used to carry a very expensive satellite phone with us. Now we carry regular cell phone, and there's cell towers everywhere. So amazing. Yeah, you actually are very involved in uh, polar. I'm going to say this wrong. Polar Tourism Guide Association. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, I chair the board of the PTGA. We call it. Yeah. And what do they do? <laughs> well, we we are a guides association, uh, and um, essentially, what we do is we provide a framework for guide training and enrichment and career progression. Um, and the ultimate goal is to, you know, try to churn out professional level guides, um, and it solves a a problem in the industry in, in that, you know, there, there isn't necessarily, a, well, there wasn't until we came along a standard for exactly what it means to be a polar guide or what it means to be a qualified Zodiac driver, for instance, or 
like who who can go kayak and like lead a kayaking excursion out there like what what sort of metrics do those people have to need and what guidance do they have to abide by and and you know do they have those competencies are they aware of all those things and understand them and so we've developed this framework that does that uh, and then we have a workplace-based assessment program uh, to where guides that are in the field can get assessed by their peers um, and and then be you know judged for operating at a level of at least minimum competency if not higher than that yeah and so there are various qualifications you can get like zodiac driving um you know uh, sort of risk assessments of uh snow and ice crack like awareness that kind of thing and like managing groups around around that so like some of them some of the qualifications we have are are more technically oriented and and so there's a level of group and risk management that's incorporated into that and so it's not just a matter of like okay i know how to you know tie these knots and do these things um but it's showing that you have good understanding of risk and guest management and that the decisions that you're making out there in the field are appropriate to the conditions and your group and all the things at the time right because these these polar environments they're very dynamic a lot of things are happening all at once um and then you have people with various skill sets various mental states physical states maybe they're hungry whatever it is and the ice is moving in and like what you did yesterday is not going to be a good decision for today and so anyway our framework allows companies to train up to these professional levels but then also assess the competencies of the guides that are going to then go out and do these things to basically say like do they need to be supervised still or can they do these things on their own and that's what we provide for people is the the framework to train up all the guides and then also a community for the guides like being a guide association there's a strong community that we that we've built with learning and sharing and so in the off seasons we do a lot of webinars people get to talk about you know various expertises they have q and a's with people that are um, you know that are experts in particular skill sets or having adv advanced experience maybe is a better way to say nobody's a real expert are they um but yeah so it's it's fun it's a great community for for guides and a great great career path and you know it makes it very clear to everyone what what needs to be done and how to do it well, when you became a polar guide, was any of that in place or is this something that's been developing recently? Uh, it's been developing recently. Uh, we're in our eighth year now as an organization. Um, and so when I when I came into it, there was originally a recognition of current competency program. Uh, and so we had all the same metrics in place. Actually, I wasn't involved in the organization at that point. Um, I, I came in as a guide and then later joined the board um so i went through the process but the 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 folks that set it all up had the existing framework and then basically they you know we we they needed to develop people that could come in and then kind of manage this stuff in the field and so it's like all right like well who are the people that we're recognizing that then can then come in you know carry you know wave the flag around and 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 you know bring other people up and be able to do these assessments in the field and be able to help operators like build up their training programs like who are these people going to be and so then there are a number of people that had a lot of history in the guiding realm and in the polar guiding realm in particular and then we went through a recognition of current competency um, thing where basically we made arguments to say yes we have these we have other certifications that overlap with these we have attestments from you know attestations from people that are in the field working with us 
Um, and so that ended up becoming the foundation of this company. But now we're way, we're way past that organizationally. And now we have, you know, guys that are coming in as biologists working on a ship for the first time. They need to, you know, learn how to drive a Zodiac around so they can lead excursions with people. And there's now a framework in place to train and assess their skills, which we're pretty proud of. You have an estimate at all of how many guides fit this kind of category? Uh, yeah, our number right now, uh, well, I just got out of a board meeting earlier today. We have 592 members in the guide association right now. Yeah. Which for a little niche like polar tourism, you know, segment of the industry, it's it's a, a pretty substantial swath of the guides that are operating on the field. Well, when I got involved with Association of Interpretive Naturalists back in uh, 74, there were about 700 or 800. I think uh, National Association for Interpretation has 6,700 now members. Yeah. And I was the executive of that for 17 years. And Lisa and I started the Certified Interpretive Guide Program 23 years ago. And at the time, it was due to, I'd been at a meeting with the chiefs of interpretation of the federal agencies and said, how many people do you have in interpretation? And the federal agencies employed about 4,000, but Park Service had 69,000 volunteers. Moderate yeah. Aquarium, 1,000 volunteer interpreters. Whoa. Uh, we started adding it together. We estimated a quarter of a million people doing interpretation at some level no basic training existed, so we created that. And it was, uh, at, have folks in your association heard of NAI and? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and not just not just the Americans, uh, but it's it's quite well known, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Those in the resources that you all have created trickle through the industry. I run into it all the time. Like being being someone these days that helps companies like I, I contract with other companies for guide training and this sort of thing. And so I have some exposure to the materials that they're passing out to their guides and these things. And I'm always seeing AI stuff coming through. Yeah. Well, we just finished an interpretive guide course virtually. Uh, if I offer one locally here in Hawaii, we just don't get even the minimum five they require, but due to the virtual course, they allow, I don't, I don't like it as well as training in person, but yeah. We've had people from Russia, Philippines, uh, UK, Canada. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the wonderful thing about the virtual world, right? Like those people wouldn't have access otherwise. And even if it's not quite as powerful as being there in person, it's still really powerful. And and that that people will carve out the time to do that says a lot for them, as well as as your framework. Yeah, our Philippines participant was getting up at two in the morning to be in the class, so I I felt yeah. So she did very well. You could be guaranteed that that person's going to get out there and crush it, right? If they're that motivated like and interested, like they're going to do such a good job. It's worth everybody's time. Well, and that's what we see. We see very often one or two or three individuals in one of these other countries starting to create professional associations in their community, which is, mm -hmm. so I'm all happy with that. Um, yeah. About a year ago, you published your book. Uh, yeah, that's right. Maybe maybe even a year and a half now it's been out. Yeah. And kind of your target market for 
Well, give it, give us the title so we know the title. It's available right. on so the, the, Thank you. Yeah, the title is the Professional Guides Handbook. Yeah, and in you know, it, it it's a book. It had to be honed in, right? And so honed it on adventure travel because that's what I do, adventure tourism. Um, but at the heart of it, it's it's a book about guiding, you know, and and so e even for people that like I've I've run into a lot of people that work in national parks or you know are guiding somewhere out in nature in particular because that's what I write about a fair bit as examples and things and you know everything that person needs to know is in there and I, I've had a lot of just really wonderful feedback and just you know experiences speaking with people that have found the book outside of the adventure realm. So there's chapters in there about long-term group management and, you know, operational planning that has to do with food and hotel accommodations and all this that might not apply to every interpretive guide that's out there. Awesome. Uh, but there are huge sections about understanding, you know, guest expectations, about what it means to be hosting visitors, how to enhance their experience, you know, the, the, the you know, the value, specifically the value of a guide um, and exactly what that means fundamental proficiencies right there's four of them of, of a, a professional guide and then there's some big chapters on interpretation on responsible visitation and sustainability and that sort of thing and then there's a whole chapter on you know kind of how to get your foot in the door and be professional and really turn guiding into a career and so those things are very all those chapters are very very universal um, so the books actually proved to be broadly appealing which was I, I didn't really envision that when I wrote, when I started writing it and it's been really rewarding that way to see it sort of start crossing borders. Oh, that's great because we need more niche books that fill in in areas that aren't covered because uh, I know in interpretation, we had some good general text written. Sam Ham's first, first one that he wrote in Spanish or published in Spanish before English ended up being very important, but his more recent book is, is really great. And uh, we have attempted to do the same from our point of view. Uh, Lisa has an interpretive planning book that's used all over the world, we're told. And uh, uh, we continue to train a bit online with that. Um, I presume if I say, what would you recommend a young person interested in this particular area of, of adventure guiding or polar guiding, uh, get your book and go to that chapter on that, how to get involved in the field? Well, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, brushing up on the skills, uh, what I get this question a lot, actually, from, from people that are truly looking to get into the industry and, you know, what do I need to do? And it's a little tricky because it's not tricky, but it's, it can look like a lot of different things. There's so many different skill sets that are required to be a guide in the adventure tourism fields specifically um, that you can come in being strong in a couple of things and even weak in a, another couple of things and you can be brought up. And um, adventure guiding in particular is you need a very broad skill set, um, but no one really is going to just walk in with that full skill set. Right. And so you think, all right, well, I want to be, you know, a cycling guide in, in wine country or a river rafting guide on the Colorado you know, you, you're going to need to know how to, 
you know, work on your bike and you're going to need to be a good pedaler and you're going to need to be a good rafter and be able to navigate the river. Right. But that, that doesn't make a guy, but that would be a basic skill set for some of these, some of these things, right. You know, an interpretive guide, like you, you kind of have to know the resource, right. In, in order to get that job to start, but then past that, and you start looking at risk management and decision-making and all these things that people may not have the experience with. And I have found that people are hesitant to apply to be like, oh, I don't know how to do all those things. Like nobody does. And that's the big secret. So focus on what you're good at and what you do know, highlight that. But then remember that if you're applying to be a river rafting guide, every other single person that's applying for that job is going to have river experience, right? So that's not enough, but you might not actually have guiding experience. So what is it? It's it's demonstrating an understanding of the industry. And that's the biggest thing. That's my biggest piece of advice for people that are trying to get into the industry is to learn about the industry, learn about guests, learn about guest expectations and how to fulfill those. And so that's what the book talks about a lot, right? It's a, the professional guide is the person that understands all these soft skills and understands the playing field and create these meaningful experiences for people. It's not because you're a really good kayaker or whatever it is, right? That's not what makes a good guide. That makes a good kayaker. Right. And so the professional level guiding is the people that understand what adventure tourism is trying to provide for people. So then in your interviews and your cover letters and things, if people can speak to that sort of thing, like their passion for the guest experience, understanding what the guest experience is, understanding the company and its philosophy and being able to impart that on the people that are doing the hiring, that's going to get you hired. Yeah. It's not because you're the best kayaker or cyclist out there. Do you feel like the adventure travel tourism feel uh, market is growing? There's more demand than. Yeah, I mean, I I do. I feel that personally in the places that I I guide, I see this. Um, but also the you know, ATTA and some of the other industry organizations, people that run the numbers, like it's very clear that that tourism in general has been growing, but the adventure sector is the fastest growing sector and in, in all of tourism um so there's plenty of room for it you know in the in the polar realm we we see that all the time it's almost every company has a new ship coming online right now uh to where i understand it's getting hard to fill some of these boats because there's so much competition between them it went from there's so many people that we had wait lists to now there's so many new boats it's we're having a hard time filling those in some areas so uh but there there is a there's an, a lot of demand if you were to get you know if you were to get into some of these like heavy wildlife areas, you know, you think of like Alaska and Yellowstone, you know, some of the areas in, in Africa and you, the polar region, some of these places that are just, just really hot and really growing right now. Uh, there are so many young guides that are out there uh, and people need training. They need to be leveled up pretty quick. Companies need help with the training. It's not enough anymore to just be like, hey, entire team that's been here for 10 years like we have a new person this year let's mentor them like that's not working anymore because there's so many new people coming in um and, and these programs have scaled so much and so that was why i i you know started to write this i did write this book is to try to help people their level up their professionalism and ability to turn this into a real career and do it in an efficient way for people well, I would encourage people to get your book and to get acquainted, if they're interested in polar guiding, get acquainted with your association. 
as yeah. uh, 17 years as an association manager. And before that, 30 years, I, I'd been the president of the Eastern Group, AIN, and uh, been involved in the profession a long time. These associations make a big difference because they put you in touch with talented people and with training and with all sorts of uh, opportunities to grow your skill set. So that matters. My final question, uh, I appreciate your time today. I know you're busy and getting ready to go to the polar regions again, is where does someone book, sir, uh, book a trip with your organization that you guide with? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. Um, you know, they could always reach out to me at the website, guideshandbook.com. Um, that's a great way to get a conversation started. If you, if people wanted to do like some kind of private customized trips in some of these areas, we can do that. Um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, I work through other operators because they have the operational capacities and the insurances and all of those things, right? Um, I spend too much time in the field to be answering phone calls for people, you know, how to, how to pack stuff. So I basically just receive people for the trips. Um, but Natural Habitat Adventures is the company that I primarily work for uh, these days in the polar regions. Uh, we spoke a little bit about the trips in, in California, those wonderful kind of expeditionary backpacking trips and rock climbing. That's with Southern Yosemite Mountain Guides. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, photography trips down in uh, Antarctica and up in the polar regions, Baja, Alaska uh, would be uh, Limblad National Geographic. And Great. any of those companies could could take care of people really well. Well, thanks for taking time to join me today. Uh, we, <laughs> I, I was looking forward to getting acquainted and learning more about what you do. I've been at the edges of adventure tourism a few times, but uh, never really considered myself as to be in that realm of guiding. I, I don't want to be responsible for people in some of these extreme situations. So, yeah. But at the end of the day, we're all we're all connected to this idea of interpretation, aren't we? And so, yeah, I really appreciate you having me on today, Tim. And uh, yeah, th th thanks. It's been very enjoyable. Well, thank you very much. Aloha. Take care. Next week, October 20th, on Friday, I will be talking story with Masa Shintani, a very talented ecotourism and interpretive trainer in Japan who has worked all over Asia and Africa and early in his career on the Big Island of Hawaii, where we live. Lisa Brochu will teach an interpretive planning course via Zoom, November 7th to 10th, three hours a day. And you can register at heartfeltassociates.com slash training. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music, this time at Yin and Yang from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week and join us next Friday on Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. Aloha.